Hi, I'm Shreen Rajak, and you're listening to Making Marketing by Digiday. Every week, I talk to executives who are changing the playbook for the industry one decision at a time. Some call it a bubble that will come to burst sooner rather than later, but Kevin Lavelle, CEO of Mizzen in Maine, prefers to call what is coming to the DTC world a carnage. I'm being only a little dramatic, but it's clear that the current trajectory is about to lead to a shakeout with some big winners and very, very big losers. On this episode, Inside Mizzen and Maine's No VC Playbook, which has meant a new injection of cash from private equity firm L. Catterton, why DTC may just be a launch strategy, and much, much more. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Hi, Kevin. Welcome to Making Marketing. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. We're so excited to have you. So I tend to go on these like big rants on Twitter about DTC these days. Um, and every time I say sort of DTC, it's only a launch strategy. You know, everyone's sort of bloated on VC funding. And, and you know, the chickens are going to come home to roost eventually with a lot of these brands. So this is something I genuinely believe. I get at least 10 people responding to me like, wait a minute. I know just the brand that is going to prove you wrong. And it's always you guys. Wow. That's awesome. You have a lot of I didn't of fans know where on... that story was going. That I know. had a great I, I ending. I kind of kept this. I kind of kept this. Uh, he had this big face of like, where is this? Where is she going with this? Um, which made me think there's something really interesting with what yeah. you've built um, you. and are continuing to build. So let's start at the beginning. Tell us a little bit about why start the company, what kind of you were going through at the time, and then we'll talk a little bit about where you're going next. Yeah, happy to. And, and I'll, I'll take you back to the beginning, but I think I'd also just share you're going to be able to find people that proves that thesis right, and you're going to be able to find people that prove that thesis wrong all day, every day. And that's just the nature of building a company. There's a lot of dynamism that goes into it, and I think that's exactly right. There is too much money in it, it is bloated, and there's going to be a lot of carnage. There's Good. also We're going to have a lot of fun today on this podcast. Yeah, and, I love the word <laughs> carnage just in the first one minute. I think uh, I will try in every interview, use that word in the opening in the opening salvo. Um, but there's also amazing success stories. Rent the Runway um, just recently uh, crossed the unicorn status. And um, I remember when that started and everyone said, that's absolutely crazy. There's no way that that could possibly work or the inventory challenges. So um, you're always going to be able to find those. Going back to the, the beginning of Mizzen and Maine, it started out of a simple observation. And it was, I was working in DC just as an intern in college and watched a guy run into a building soaked in sweat in a dress shirt that was a little bit ill-fitting. And he looked absolutely terrible because he was drenched in sweat. And when he dried off about an hour later, it looked even worse. It's that kind of, it gets crunchy or crinkly and it just looks terrible. So I grew up playing golf and watched performance polos take over a very traditional industry and thought if performance fabrics can take over on the golf course, why couldn't they take over in the work world? And um, fast forward a number of years later, decided I needed to give this a shot. So I spent about a year in product development and we launched in July of 2012. We sold our first few shirts to friends and family. And then after that, there was the oh boy moment. And now I actually need to go build a brand and go try and build a business. That's interesting that there was that sort of, and I think that's, it's a common, it's a common story in some ways that, you know, kind of you testing a thesis, you have a thesis, you're sort of testing it, maybe with friends and family, maybe with, you know, close people around you. And then sort of it's, wait, this, I think we're onto something. And now the branding kind of takes over. And I find that really fascinating. What was sort of that gap between those two things? Because you knew you had something in your hands that would work. You think there's a market here. You're somebody who's gone through this. So you have that sort of personal thing. Um, and then comes the brand. What's the gap there? So I definitely started um, strong with the brand. I ensured that it was a part of our launch. 
um, but then you need to actually go build it. This is no name or logo or icon actually means anything until you make it mean something. Right. And when we say brand, I think a lot of people think, well, I, I named the thing and it looks nice, but it's more to it. There's a lot more to it, especially in this category than it's that. It's the living, breathing entity that survives every day or eventually dies. And when I, I thought about getting going, I just thought, I just need to go see if this works because I think it will. And um, my wife knew what I was working on uh, and I'd been tinkering for weeks and months with it. And I came home from work. I'd picked up my prototype on the way home from a local seamstress who made our first shirt. And when she didn't realize that I wasn't wearing a performance fabric dress shirt, that was the aha moment for me that this crazy idea that I'd had for five or six years at the time, it really could be it could be something. So when, again, we launched online and part of that came out of naivete and part of it came from, well, I don't know, I'm, I need to start seeing if people will buy it. And it turns out that that's the perfect way to start is just sell online. You don't have to sign any leases. You don't have to put any infrastructure in place. Just put the website up. And with Shopify, which had become pretty popular, um, this was back in 2012. It had been around for maybe two or three years. It's so easy to open a store. Right. And they a lot do of the, it all essentially for you. Ab- absolutely. Right. You don't have to do integrations. You don't have to do payment processors or shopping carts. And uh, people come to me with questions about launching a business. And for me, it's just start See if people will actually pay you money for their product. No amount of market research matters if people aren't actually paying you money for their product. Mm -hmm. And whatever the industry says is kind of irrelevant because trade shows are a huge part of the apparel industry. If people are buying your product, it doesn't really matter what the trade shows say. And I did go to my first trade show six months after we launched, and we were basically laughed out of the building. People said... My clients, my customers, because the menswear industry is kind of stuffy, they would never, ever wear synthetic dress shirts. Nobody's going to wear dress shirts that feel that way. Right. Absolutely Mm -hmm. not. And I just kind of said, okay, well, I've already sold a bunch and I'm going to keep selling them. So thank you for stopping by and telling me how bad my product is. I really appreciate it. (laughs) And so Here are the receipts, by the way. Yeah, thanks. Um, So we picked up one or two accounts at our first show. And then six months later, we picked up maybe four or five. And then after, uh, I think, five or six trade shows, we'd gotten to 100 accounts carrying our product. Today, um, we're in over 800 retail doors across the country. And it's just a slow and steady major industries aren't going to evolve quickly. You need to do it for them. And that's the beauty of starting online and focusing on building a brand that people really care about. Let's go back. So you you had this website. You're saying, okay, I'm going to start selling this product that I believe in on the site. What else did you do? You can't just obviously put up a site and say, hope, hope to God somebody shows up. Yeah. Um, what was kind of the launch strategy around, again, building their brand, getting the word of mouth, getting the marketing, doing all of that so that people actually come and even try it out. I wish I could say I had a really great business plan and I had all sorts of great ideas. Wait, you didn't have a deck? No deck, Uh, no investors, no uh, nothing. Just got going. Um, I can hear founders just like gasping. I know, I know. Right. I didn't go to New York. I didn't go to Silicon (laughs) Valley. I was in Dallas, Texas, starting a clothing company. 
but I just got going and I did everything from wrapping water bottles with my brand name and our website and handing them out on Katy trail, which is a, a big trail through Dallas, um, in a dress shirt when it was 110 degrees in the summer in Dallas and people thought I was crazy, but I got some people to stop and mm-hmm. I went to marathon expos. I went to bike races. I did all sorts of stuff just to get in front of people. Mm-hmm. And I learned a lot along the way on what they liked, what they didn't like. And that consumer insight is something that's driven us all along. Mm-hmm. The, the really focusing on building a brand, that to me was not, okay, this is how I go build a brand. It was, we defined it. Now we needed to go live it every day and stay true to that. That for me is what building a brand is. You can go hire an agency and they can give you all of the materials. It doesn't mean anything until you go do it day in, day out. Mm-hmm. And so over time, it was um, working on getting press. It was working on showing up to events. It was going to our wholesale accounts and doing trunk shows and mm-hmm. um when I would travel, which is a lot, I would tell people show up at this bar. And if you're wearing Miz in a I'll buy you a drink and just got to meet people. And they yeah. thought it was really cool that the founder was there. And I mean, it was, there were maybe three or four of us at the time, <laughs> so it wasn't really that big of a deal. Um, and, and over time we had some strokes of good fortune. Um, a newspaper article in my hometown paper, Sarasota, uh, alerted a very now famous baseball player's mother to buy him one for Christmas. And we went to high school together and we ended up reconnecting. And from there, we became the shirt of choice of pro athletes. And I've done probably, now our team's probably done over 100 trunk shows in in professional athlete locker rooms, which is how we ended up getting an endorsement deal with J.J. Watt, which is how we ended up meeting all these other athletes, which is now a lot of people know us from J.J., right. Tim Tebow, Kyler Murray, and, and most recently, Phil Mickelson. Yeah, and we're going to talk about TV um, yeah. and Phil Mickelson specifically in just a minute. But... You said a lot of things just now. You said word of mouth. You said, you know, great, amazing bar story. Um, that's actually a lot of fun. And I yeah. lo- love that idea. You didn't say a lot about Facebook, about Instagram. Tell me about if you did spend money on kind of social media, just especially in those early days mm-hmm. too, because that I think is these days the bedrock of so many companies if they start, especially as they're starting out, because it, it does work. It is efficient. And mm-hmm. almost everybody I know is talking about how much they spent on Facebook in the early years. Yeah. So it's also, um, it is efficient and it does work, but it's less efficient and it works less every day. So in those early years, we did not spend any money on any of those platforms. And Instagram, when we launched, I don't think you could spend money on. They weren't doing anything with advertising. Um Twitter, I, I think they're just now figuring out how to make money. But I, we, I've toyed around with Twitter a number of times, and it's just never really returned for us. It's not, it's not the right. Was platform. it on purpose that you were sort of like, well, especially Facebook specifically, I had no right? Money. No, we had no money. Um, it was every dollar was just going into hustling and buying more product because of our cash cycles. And mm-hmm. um, we had to buy fabric to cut and sew it to then ship it to, when I say mm-hmm. our warehouse, it was my house for a while. <laughs> and then um, our, our first distribution. And so we didn't really have the money. Um, we raised a little bit of angel money over the first right. few years. But and you didn't go out to a big VC and say, and that was that's something you've still not done. Correct. <laughs> go yeah. out to a big VC and say, hey, we're doing this thing and... I've, I've spoken money. with a couple of venture capital firms just to kind of understand and see the interest. Uh, I would be lying if I said it wouldn't have been really cool to go get a ton of money to go just plow into Facebook. We did start spending money on Facebook about three, three and a half years in. I think that's when it was. Was 20, that sort of, okay, we have money now. Let's, or was there a specific need that you were saying, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to do this now. I think it was both. Um, we'd raised a little bit of money and it's also now you need to start getting your name out there even more. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, when 
we did start spending money on Facebook. It wasn't, okay, now we have our brand figured out, so we'll go spend money on it. It was just part of the gradual evolution. Um, but not having any money forces you to be really creative and, again, get really close to the customer. Mm-hmm. Um, and then at a certain point, like everybody, you need to, to go to go grow organically. But the, the humorous story on the venture capital firm is I, I spoke and we had a lot of positive metrics. We had a lot of good things. And, and I will never forget, she said, I just don't see how you 10x your revenue over the next 12 to 18 months. So we're not interested. And I said, 10x. 10, 10x. It stuck with me forever. <laughs> Uh, and so I just said, you are absolutely right. Because you don't know. There's no way that we were going to do not, it. And you're probably not. You're actually 100% not. It was, it's, I, can, I would bet the company that we're not going to because we have to buy inventory to hit that. And so to 10x our revenue would mean we'd have to take a bet on inventory to get there. And our supply chain just, maybe we're just not sophisticated enough, but also I can tell you from the way we make our product, that bet is so astronomical that it just wasn't going to happen. And she was right. So that's that's a great point. And I it's think it's also that's, okay, by the way. And that's well, it is okay. But also that that my my question was that this is clearly what sort of the narrative in the market is. I mean, and that's why I sort of go on my little rants about Twitter and you know, only really joking uh, that it's never going to work, but there is a lot of truth to the amazing and intense amount of expectations. And this we've seen this happen in media. We saw this happen in publishing. And it's interesting to me that the expectations are always going to be high. And I think, you know, the 10x revenue, the, well, I just don't see how this is going to happen. And that's why. But this is something that brand founders, whatever category in DTC they're in, are being asked mm-hmm. every day. So how do you sort of reconcile... This industry that, again, is going to have some winners, going to have some losers, but so much of this is just pressure from VC. Is that is that why there's sort of this like potential DTC is a bubble kind of conversation happening, or is there something else? Uh, I, I would say it's largely due to the speculative nature of the VCs. And we, look, we raise money from a private equity firm, which has much more realistic expectations of building a valuable brand over time. And was that deliberate? Yes, Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so we received a growth investment from Catterton, L. Catterton about two years ago, and they've been a wonderful partner. And they push hard on growth because they invested in a growth company. <laughs> but there's no just artificial pump of just get it up to here and then we'll go ahead and exit and we'll all you know, uh, go, go celebrate. It's go build the most valuable brand that you can. And some brands are going to have huge years and some are going to have over five years, a different path, but end up being more valuable. And there's been a lot that's been written on the counter to, um, the money coming in is you're better off as a founder selling your company, owning 80% of it and selling it for $50 million, than selling it for $300 million and owning 2% of the company. And, and those are obviously, um, almost facilities numbers, but mm-hmm. there, there's but that's an important point. How, it, what are you actually going to get out of it when that inevitable exit happens? Yeah, and if you chase the growth, there's a lot of excitement about it. But at the end of the day, what what have you really created? And um, I know a lot of uh, I know of a lot of founders who ended up losing control of their company because they were just chasing wild growth. And while things are going well, you're on top of the world. Um, but as soon as uh, something starts to slow down or the algorithm changes or something goes wrong with one of your suppliers, there's no patience. And that's a very bad place to be. The control part is interesting. Um, and, you know, whether that's control over 
are you going to basically put all your eggs in the Facebook basket as one form of control? Um, another is how much money you're going to take from VCs who will then demand, as is their right, some pretty insane growth numbers. Um, but look, VCs are taking a big bet. I mean, it's not easy Absolutely. being in that industry, right? You're you're kind of doing a lot of speculation. You're mm-hmm. looking. And right now, DTC is this hot word. It's mm-hmm. this thing where, oh, this this can work if only you get the one category that is ripe for disruption and all of these things match up and so on. My interest in DTC is because I don't know sort of what comes after the online only model kind of ends. And you're in stores, you have stores, you're also in stores, mm-hmm. you're not just selling online only. Talk to us a little bit about that growth path of, okay, you're more than a website now, you want to go into all these places. Why did you do that? Uh, it was actually some advice from Damon John uh, before I started the company. I had very fortunate opportunity to have dinner with him and talk to him about what we were doing. And um, he said, based on how unique your product is, you really absolutely have to have people try it on. And so you're not going to be able to, unless you go raise a boatload of money, go build out all of your own stores, and you don't really know who you are yet, so I wouldn't go build a store. Um, The relationships that wholesale accounts have with their customers is second to none. Um, And so go get in there, learn from them, and view them as partners. Don't just view them as people who would... Um, you know, allow you to uh, online shop, you know, go, go, I, don't, I forget what the showrooming is the term. So we don't undercut our partners. We view them as extensions of who we are. And so we want to support them. And the more successful they are, the more successful we are and vice versa. So um, being in 800 points of retail across the United States and, and really great points of retail is so critical for us because the product, you'd have to try it on. Once you have a dress shirt that stretches, you're never going to want to wear anything else. But until you actually stretch your arms in a dress shirt, you cannot comprehend what that is. Unless you're one of the few people who are at the front end of the kind of learning curve of, hey, it's something new, I'll just try it, right? When Away came out, and it's I've got mine here in the corner, people just said, I, I, yeah, I want that. Right. It, there wasn't necessarily a rationale for it. There's plenty of luggage that's nicer or better or has more features or whatever, but it's a great piece of luggage. And all of my friends in my world of kind of uh, the DTC were starting to get it. So it was, was like, sort of a branding yeah, halo too. I, I have to a try A really it strong too. brand. And, you know, a way I have so much respect for, for what um, Jen and Steph have done. They, they've blown it out of the water. And, um, all of their metrics seem like they're just in a really great spot. They've raised a bunch of money, but they're proving to be very successful. So I continue to wish them nothing but the best. But I think they're also an example of, I learned so much in my early days getting so much wrong. They said, we will be DTC only. We will never go in stores. And in a very short period of time, they're in stores. And I think that's a great thing for them because people seeing and interacting your product it's been said to death, and Philip Krim from Casper has said it, and um, the Warby guys have said it, mediocre, mediocre retail is dying. Bad retail is effectively dead. Um, but great retail, great retail, differentiated retail will still exist. And it's going to work. And I think it is. I mean, you're looking at some really amazing sort of experiments in retail, yep. in that more traditional, when I say retail, I mean like physical retail, that are working. People are, you walk down Soho in New York, and you see what? You see Casper, you see Away, you see all of these supposed DTC brands, but they're not DTC in the traditional sense anymore. So can a brand sort of just last online only or was that sort of never really in your in your roadmap yeah. for growth? It was never in our roadmap for growth. Um, I think the, the better term 
uh, from than DTC for for what I think will be successful is uh, the the term that Andy Dunn coined the DNVB digitally native vertical brand because um, that's what they did at Benebus. that's yep. what exactly and what they their plan pioneered is. a very unique model which has worked well for them we've tried the showroom model and it didn't work for us and it's based on how you train your customers and how you interact and and what you're offering um, I I think there are a few brands who will potentially remain online only one that comes to mind is third love um i've known um dave and his wife heidi for a while they are awesome i actually for those have, who don't know third love bras known for sort of fit finder which yes. was kind of the most uh most sort of evocative and interesting way to use kind of customer data and personalization which now everybody's copying which yes, i love everybody's <laughs> copying and they have built a powerhouse i mean i've come to know them they're a catterton investment as well what they're doing is remarkable, and I do think that there's a chance that they will be online only because of the infinite scalability of what they're doing, and they are, they have come to be known for the absolute best-fitting bra that you can buy, and so they don't really need to open a store because they get it so right online, and there's so much interest. At a certain point, they may open a few stores, but they don't need to go into wholesale in the same capacity. Right. Um, I think that's going to be the absolute exception to to the rule. I do think every other brand that claims they're online only will either peter out or they'll need to differentiate. The stores thing is interesting because I think you know stores also act as a marketing tool, and mm-hmm. I think for a lot of brands online, previously online only brands, etc., DNVBs. A lot of them are okay with opening a couple stores that mm-hmm. sort of act more as like a marketing investment than a conversion instrument. Yeah, um, and we've seen yeah. we've seen the very positive halo effect of stores. We've opened we've done a bunch of pop ups. I can tell you we will never open a store in Soho. It's just <laughs> not where our customers shopping. Right. But we do continue to look back into New York for maybe financial district or midtown where our customer is. Because we're not fashion. We're just we sell dress shirts that stretch mm-hmm. and the best damn dress shirts that stretch. But we're not that fashion and the rents in Soho are so high that we can just never make it work. But we're seeing our stores as a great brand builder and they're profitable because Mm -hmm. we don't go in and spend two hundred thousand dollars on building out this elaborate setup and store experience and um the positive effect that we see fort worth we we have a store in clear fork mall across from neiman marcus a really unique outdoor shopping concept and um fort worth the zip codes surrounding the store were in the top 50 or so of and, our and online you've, demographics. And you chose it kind of, t- tell us a little bit actually about choosing that, where that store goes, because you just made a great point about very, Soho not being for you. you know? It was very opportunistic. We had a great lease opportunity right out of the gate. Um, we look definitely strategically on location and demographics and zip codes, but then also where can we get a lease that when people want me to sign a five to 10 year lease and my business is now it's going to turn seven this year. Like I'm not ready to sign a five-year lease. (laughs) So we looked very opportunistically and this just happened to be there and we were going to be there for a few months and then we extended and extended and extended. But what we found is the zip codes surrounding our Fort Worth store are now in the top 20 Mm. of our online um, business. So it went from top 50-ish to now it's in the top 20 because what we see is once you have a store, there's a level of credibility that is so significant. And with how easy it is to launch a brand online today and with Instagram and Facebook to start targeting people very specifically, Instagram has really become kind of the online QVC. There's mm-hmm. a new brand. There's a new product every minute. Um, I've seen more. I've seen probably a dozen potential competitors start up in the last three years to Mizzen. And then within 
six to 12 months, they're gone. Right. They're potential in the way that they're Mm -hmm. kind of in your category and doing sort of what you're doing. Right. But then they go away and maybe they're retooling or maybe it just didn't work or whatever. But when all of these new brands happen all the time, if someone's hearing about Mizzen for the first time, it's one of all these other random new brands. But when you have stores, when you're in Nordstrom, when you have these partnerships, it gives us that credibility and authenticity that money cannot buy. And um, people have AstroTurf stores. Kit and Ace opened whatever it was, 45 stores in the first 18 months of existence and now they're effectively gone. That's just so interesting because again, and then, you know, it's so funny to me that we're talking about this at a time where never before in history have consumers been more comfortable shopping online. Never mm-hmm. before in history have we been okay buying everything online. Mm-hmm. We're talking about a time where people are now buying DTC pills and vitamins, things they're putting in their body, mm-hmm. just on their body. And yet the physicality, the in, the tangible remains kind of a, a path to legitimacy yeah. that I don't think a lot of people sort of saw coming. Um, and yet there's a resurgence of physical retail. Absolutely. And for every store that closes, there's 10 new DTC companies that are looking to get in there. I do think you still have some level of whether it's amnesia or uh, a reluctance to believe reality from some landlords in New York that still <laughs> think that they're going to get five Mark Jacobs stores to come back within two square blocks. Um, and, and that'll rectify. But, but the real estate industry needs to, in some ways, adjust for sort of a new reality of it. I mean, you are seeing, for example, um, not to make this about a real estate podcast, but you see so many empty storefronts in major cities in the U.S., I mean, New York alone. Um, and a lot of it is because it's the expectation that it's going to be the 10-year lease when you have companies that just have barely existed for three. Right. I, uh, I do like that there are some mayors and city councils that are threatening to impose penalties against stores that don't uh, storefronts that are empty that, that's not going to work long term <laughs> you may you may penalize some people but I don't think that's the right long term I don't solution. think that's exactly the way to make no. money back uh, let's talk a little bit more about uh, legitimacy or sort of uh, credibility because you just mentioned stores another one is TV um, you're doing TV again another one of those things where it's like oh brands that are have websites need to now do television and look a lot like other traditional quote unquote brands um, as they're growing. What was sort of behind your decision to say, okay, TV, that's that's where we're going to spend money now, especially if it's funny because what, seven years ago, you're like, no Facebook because I don't have money. Right. And and as you grow up, there are these steps that you take. And, you know, we went from doing only pop ups because I could be in and out in six weeks and it didn't really matter if it worked or not. but with TV, our first television commercial was one for the ages and one that I'm sure we will never top again. We bought some airtime during the Bridgestone Open. Um, it was last August where our commercial that we shot with Phil Mickelson, where he was dancing, he was dodging golf balls, he was doing the worm, he did a fan kick. Um, he looked great. Uh <laughs> We we really went for broke on the concept and then bought, I think we bought an initial run of six or seven spots. Okay. But most importantly for us in that was we seeded it all over the place online. And so by the time the commercial actually aired, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people had already seen right. it. The old Super Bowl, the Super Darth Bowl thing, Vader right. trick. Right. And so we used the fact that we were buying a TV ad to amplify it was our first TV ad to amplify the online reach. And then there was also the element of once it was on TV, then ESPN couldn't ignore it because (laughs) it was Phil Mickelson dancing. If it was just a video online, maybe, maybe not, but it was actually during the WGC Bridgestone. And so then ESPN played it on loop for about four days 
just nonstop. It was on every single ESPN program for days. Right. So you were basically you're you're you have a combination essentially of okay, you didn't just buy a TV ad. You're also then the PR and the press and yeah. it's Phil Mickelson doing all this. Yeah. Was there a sense of I don't know? Was there a worry that my God, we're, it's still a lot of money. Yeah. Like TV's still expensive. It's not it's not like randomly deciding to buy a Facebook ad. I mean, did you definitely? And you know, you're you're still a small company. You're a young company. You don't have, as discussed, you know, oodles of VC investment ready to blow on things like this. You have to keep your cost structures under control. And I think, was there a sense of sort of trepidation or I hope this works kind of before you got into it? Yes, absolutely. I was confident that the amount of money we were spending on that one run of ads, it was going to be fine um, based on everything else that we were doing with that specific ad. We've done quite a few ads since then. Um, we, we ran that actual ad for several weeks afterwards. And then um, we launched a, a campaign. Was it? I think it was the end of last year, beginning of this year. Um, around helping men address their textile dysfunction and had a lot of fun with that. Basically just spoofed these medical commercials because of how <laughs> ridiculous the medical commercials are. Um, and I, look, measuring TV performance is very hard, especially as a young brand. The way that most people measure TV is they spend a fortune on the ads and on tracking and they play games like they won't run it for two weeks and then they'll run it for five and then they won't run it for two weeks and then they get the data over time. I don't have that ability to do so. So it is definitely a learning process and we're seeing what demographic information we're getting and we're seeing where we air the ads and what's happening and it hits to the website. But it's not anywhere as simple as I spend $10,000 on this set of ads in Facebook. I get this many mm-hmm. clicks and I know how much revenue I got. And you're also keeping a lot of the, a, a lot of sort of that creative uh, prowess and everything in-house and close to the chest because you're mm-hmm. not hiring a really expensive agency to do all this. You're doing it yourself. We have uh, just an absolutely brilliant creative director, Richard Ross, who's concepted basically everything that you've seen is the brand. And that allows us to spend more money on things like TV is not also spending all that money on the production. Mm-hmm. Um, we had one of our marketing director um, stood in as a producer for the commercial. She produced a television commercial herself. We have an absolutely amazing Scrappy. team. Yeah. And, you, and we have to be. <laughs> right. um, so we will continue to make sure that the brand shines through in everything that we do. Um, we're a little bit irreverent, but not offensively so. We like to have fun, and that shines through. And it's something that people like to share with their friends. Mm-hmm. I think those are the most successful commercials. So seven years old, right? You've almost what, yeah. almost seven. Yeah. Um, what do the sort of the next five years look like for you? What is growth? Um, we are just going to keep making the best damn dress shirt. And we have been growing at a very strong clip for several years. We've been about doubling uh, for the last several years. For us at this point in time, it's we know that there is a high degree of love for our brand. Mm -hmm. Um, Our net promoter score is north of 80. Um, Our average rating on our website is um, like 4.8, 4.9. We have a strong love for the brand and the product. It's about now making it better. Um, improving our supply chain, being able to make a lot more and be more reactive because it's a long lead supply chain. So, And that would enable you to scale. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, doing really unsexy things like in, we just launched NetSuite. How awesome is that? It's not awesome. It's a terrible experience, <laughs> um, but our team did a great job. It's really about setting ourselves up for the next decade. Um, we, When I started this, you don't flip an apparel company. Uh, it's a very, very, very long journey. I wanted to build a brand that was going to 
be around for a long time. I'm going to ask you about stretchiness, not about the dress shirt stretchiness, but stretchiness of the brand itself. Yeah. You're seeing it right now more maybe in wellness or in some in CPG, but there's a lot of stretchiness to a lot of brands that were born online because you don't have the hundred years of history behind mm-hmm. you saying you can't do something. Um, so which is why you see, you know, tampon companies going into sexual wellness, sort of adjacent, kind of related. Um, but you're also seeing brands go into things that are completely different. Is there sort of room for a house of brands under your vision? Is there room for doing something that adjacent to apparel, maybe adjacent to performance wear, but not necessarily in what Mizzen and Maine has been known for? Where do you see sort of the stretch for the brand? People have asked me since I started the company, when are you going to make women's? And I used to say soon, and I stopped saying that because there's so much for us to do and focus on with performance menswear at Mizzen and Maine. Um, I, I see a lot of opportunity, um, and, and I, separate from a group like Forerunner, who's done so many great brands, invest in so many great brands lately, you have PVH, which owns a ton of primarily men's, but, but shirting and, and, and uh, apparel companies. You have uh, the LVMH group. I, I do think that there's an opportunity for some sort of amalgamation of these DNVBs who could have some really strong adjacencies mm-hmm. to allow these brands to remain independent because Almost the strength like is in the holding brand. A holding company. company. Sort yeah. of what, again, the LVMH of DNVB kind yes. of Yes. Mm-hmm. And there are plenty of brands that compete in the LVMH portfolio against each other and also within the PVH com- uh, portfolio. However, there's a lot of strong learnings and there's a lot of opportunities for leverage and scale. So I would be interested to see, I think it will happen in some capacity and I'm not sure how much of it will happen from the Walmart group um, doing what they're doing. Um, in some ways, they've kind of picked a random hodgepodge of owned brands that, and allowed them to remain independent. I'm sure there's a broader strategy that I'm not fully seeing yet. It's sort of the use of kind of jet black in that and yes. then being able to almost like turbocharge, yep. at least ideally. And then store number eight, which is, um, I think Jenny mm-hmm. um, has gone over to run. So I, I think there's going to be some evolution of this process. And maybe there's uh, the American DNVB kind of counterpunch to the LVMH group. Uh, that would be really exciting to see. And I, I know from all of the founders that I've gotten to know, there's uh, there's ways that you could overlap with very competitive brands in a very healthy way. And there's ways that you could launch adjacencies. I think I've seen that Harry's is trying to do this in some capacity. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've said that they're going to invest a lot in starting up new brands. And I think they just started Flamingo. I'm, I'm not sure what they'll do next. Will they, sh- will they stay entirely focused there? And you might see sort of, I mean, it's sort of building the Unilever, but out of DNVBs. Yeah. And mm-hmm. the challenge will be you need to have a very high bankroll for that notion of, of television, right? right? To be really effective in TV, and there are companies that are really good at it, you have to be able to spend a lot of money, be really patient, test a lot of things, and then you can be successful. And so if an entity can scale that across a portfolio of brands, there's a huge opportunity. Speaking of Unilever, I feel like one of the big you know, you talk about kind of big success stories, and obviously, a lot of people bring up still Dollar Shave Club, billion dollar exit, et cetera. Um, I find more and more people, especially sort of this year, are sort of turning into this like, is this the turning point? Like you mentioned, is it for some it'll be carnage, for some it yeah. won't. Um, and Casper is the one sort of that keeps coming up, one of, you know, probably the biggest, most mm-hmm. well known, um, previously online only brands. Is, is kind of the only options for companies like Casper and just anybody else in sort of the previously online now growing space, is it, what is it, exit or IPO? There's Because there does seem to be a little bit 
for Casper and into a window of opportunity. They can't get so big that nobody's going to buy them mm -hmm. because it's going to be too expensive. But also at the same time, an IPO is very, very difficult. And mm -hmm. even very successful companies, yep. unicorns, et cetera, haven't IPO'd and they're biding their time. What What is kind of the opportunity going forward? I, I think it's, this is the, coming back to the, the start of the conversation that you can find anyone to prove you right and anyone to prove you wrong. I, I feel like Casper faces a, a difficult challenge because they've raised a lot of money as to the investors need their money back. Now, I don't know who and what time horizons Casper's dealing with. It entirely depends on their investors because some will just railroad you into the exit and some will be, let's take our time and figure it out. Um, Casper also is still a fraction of a company like Uber or Lyft, which is facing their, oh, their crap moment. Crap. Um, so I, I really, I, I think that anything is possible because I, I look at the most successful uh, DTC startups that I think of in the last few years are Xbar, which, and they're not necessarily strictly DTC. They had, they definitely had wholesale distribution, but they were DNVB. They started and they just- They started online, mostly online. Yeah. Um, they sold for $600 million and they owned 100% of the company. Mm -hmm. I don't think it gets any better than that from a founder's perspective. Yeah, there's no sort of, hey, I only, their your brand is going to live on. They're going to be able to tap into this bigger ecosystem. Um, you look at guys like Movement, um, Jake and, and the team at Movement. I think there's, there's examples of ways that you can do it and be successful. The, the biggest lesson I see for, um, for all of the DNVBs in the years ahead is the well will dry up. And uh, are we closer to the ninth inning of this bull market run that's been going on for a decade? Or are we closer to the fifth inning? I would bet we're closer to the ninth. And when things go wrong, you're going to see investors pull out faster than you could possibly imagine. And strong brands that built sustainably without a giant, I don't know, without, without that don't owe a bunch of people, basically, yeah. for whatever yeah. that and, is. And you, you owe it. It's, it's equity. It's credit rather than debit. But mm -hmm. it's still a problem. Um, so I, I would... I would posit that the cleanup is coming and the brands that are going to survive. Casper could go on for another 10 years without IPOing or exiting. Sure. And we've seen that from a company like Uber that it just kept raising more and more money at bigger and bigger valuations. So I, I don't think exit is the, the way that I would frame up what's ahead. I it's would not frame exit up, or bust. No, I would frame up do they have the right drivers in place for long-term sustainability? And you don't have to, I mean, Amazon was unprofitable for how long? And now they're one of the biggest companies in the world, but they had the right fundamentals in place to continue their drive. That's, that's also where we're focusing is um, some months were profitable and some were not. That's not the key focus for us as a business, but we're also not thinking, well, one day we'll make money and we'll figure it out then. And it's just not our problem. It is our problem. It's our problem every day. And brands that don't align themselves to the core drivers of their business, mm -hmm. what's driving your marketing engine? Maybe it's not Facebook at all. Maybe it's literally just the army of influencers that believe in your product. Mm -hmm. Strong brands, sustainably grown. Yeah. Sounds good. Kevin, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. This was fun. And that's all for today's episode. Thank you for listening. Our producer is Aditi Sangal. If you like the show, here's what you need to do. Leave us a review and a rating on iTunes, hopefully five stars or wherever you're listening to this podcast. It helps new listeners find us. Tweet at me. I'm Shreen Patek. Send me an email at at with your thoughts. I can't wait to hear what you think. Thanks again for listening.